Well, greetings, everyone, to all our brethren around the world. Shabbat Shalom. And welcome to our guests from Georgia and uh, other places around the world. Happy to have you here on this beautiful winter day. We thank God for the needed rain we had yesterday, and we're expecting warm temperatures today up to 60 degrees Fahrenheit or 16 degrees Celsius. So we're enjoying this uh, warm winter. Of course, we can always find something to complain about, and we can complain about the weather. I don't know if any of you have this past week, but perhaps you would complain about the city in which you live. This past week, or actually just yesterday in the Charlotte Observer business section, was an article that really caught my attention and probably yours. It says, Are You Miserable? And the subhead to that headline is Forbes magazine rates Charlotte ninth worst in misery of 150 metro areas. Are you all miserable? The ninth worst out of 150 metro areas. Let me just read from the article. It says Charlotte has undergone a tremendous economic growth uh, this past decade while the population has soared 32%, but the current picture isn't as bright. Employment growth has not kept up with population growth, meaning unemployment rates are up about 50% compared with 10 years ago, says the Forbes article. Forbes called Charlotte the biggest surprise in its misery ranking of 150 largest metro areas. The QC, which you know means Queen City, the QC ranked ninth worst. Not surprising, Detroit, the sputtering motor city, topped the list. And then number two is Stockton, California, three Flint, Michigan, four New York, five Philadelphia, six Chicago, Los Angeles, seven, eight Modesto, California, nine Charlotte, and ten Providence, Rhode Island. <clears throat> so we can all take a look at the environment around us, and I'm sure that most of us would disagree that we feel that we're the ninth worst in the nation. Mayor Pat McQuarrie, of course, uh, disagrees with Forbes' appraisal. He said, quote, I think they need drug testing at Forbes. <laughs> Half of the city, New York, where Forbes is headquartered, moved here for a reason, a good quality of life. But there is one observation from uh, an insurance salesman. He says, it's hard to get around. You are stuck in traffic at 3 in the afternoon for 20 minutes. He also complained about taxes. This is the first state he's ever lived, this salesman, where he has to pay an annual property tax on his car. With all the taxes I am paying, why can't you fix the roads, he asks. It's a good question. So most of us here uh, have moved from the, who moved here from the past uh, few years and we can certainly identify with some of the problems that were mentioned. That, of course, happens to big city growth. But let me ask you today, are you miserable or do you experience misery? Human nature, when we all have human nature, is a mixture of good and evil. And it tends to emphasize the negative, particularly under Satan's influence. Let's turn to Philippians, the second chapter. Philippians 2, I've challenged you on this particular scripture before, and I wonder if any of you are able to go through one week 
or one day in applying the Scripture. And verse 14. In the King James Version, it says, Do all things without murmurings and disputings. The New King James, Do all things without complaining and disputing. So have you complained this past week? The NASB says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And the NIV, Do everything without complaining or arguing. I don't know that there are many in this audience or seeing this sermon video or hearing it around the world that is able to fulfill that particular scripture daily. And yet, of course, that's God's command to us that we need to do everything without complaining or arguing. We do need to judge ourselves with that mindset. Do we have that tendency to complain or grumble? Many in the world, and to a certain degree, some in the church may experience depression. I won't ask you to raise your hands, but certainly that has happened. And some seem to cultivate uh, depression or discouragement. How are you coping with disappointment, discouragement, or depression? And what are some of the ways to overcome discouragement? So the sermon title today is How to Overcome Discouragement or simply overcoming discouragement. We all face disappointments and discouragements from time to time, anywhere from accidents to death to finances, persecutions, family strife or job stress or jealousy, romance or relationship discouragement, sickness, maybe even correction from time to time. Do we get discouraged, dejected, disheartened, despondent? And perhaps even to the point of saying, what's the use? And as ministers, some of us have had to help people who've come to that place in their lives where they say, what's the use? They're so discouraged. and There seems to be no hope for them. I want to share with you two stories, and they're a little lengthy, but I think it's worth the time to share them with you. It's from a book called How to Live 365 Days a Year by Dr. John A. Schindler. And these are two stories that I think illustrate emotions and mindsets and attitudes. Dr. Schindler writes the story of two men. You should know about these two men and remember them as you deal with your problems. They are as different as night and day. One of them, Sam, is the perfect example of emotional stress. The other, William, is the epitome of emotional stasis, meaning stability. Dr. Schindler had... Uh, pioneered EII, emotionally induced illness, in which he realized that many people are sick not because of bacteria, but because of emotions. And uh, he called that EII. The first story is about Sam, king of his own stew. I'll read the story. This is on page 87. Sam's world, if someone other than Sam inhabited it, would be a dreamland. The only bad feature in Sam's life is his own condition of emotional stress, which, mind you, Sam is not accountable for since he got it through bad family education. I think he's being a little facetious there. Sam is a well-to-do farmer and a director of a bank in a neighboring town. Sam has a wonderful farm, which he inherited from his father. From his father, too, he received a grouch of the kind fairly common among successful men. I don't think a grouch like that is inherited. It's acquired by living in the shadow of someone else's grouch. His mother was grouchy, too. 
I imagine she got it living with Sam's father. Or perhaps his father married the woman because she had the type of grouch he felt went with a solid citizen. In spite of the fact that Sam had never had any hardships, no financial losses, no extraordinary family catastrophes, no blows beneath the belt from unkind fate, he nevertheless walked through life as though utter and complete ruin were just around the corner. On Sam's side of the street, the sun never shone. Sam was like the man walking in a park. Well, I better not read that part of it. (laughs) Okay. Oh, yeah. Telling a friend how unfortunate was his every move, saying, some people buy bonds, they go up. Some people marry. She is a princess. For me, everything goes wrong. I've asked Sam's family and Sam's neighbors whether they have ever heard Sam say a hopeful, pleasant word. But none of them ever have. Oh, yes, I almost forgot. His wife thinks that Sam did say something pleasant the first year they were married, but that was so long ago, she is no longer sure. To illustrate how Sam's disposition operates, I drove into his farm one day in July, just about the time the oats were ready to cut. Sam had 60 acres of the nicest oats you'd ever want to see. I said, Sam, that's a wonderful field of oats you have out there. Sam answered mournfully, yeah, but when the wind will blow it down before I get it cut. I watched the oats. Sam got it cut before it blew down. He got it threshed before it burned up and I knew he received a good high price for the oats. So the next time I saw Sam, I said, Sam, how did the oats turn out? Oh, I suppose good enough, he replied, but a crop of oats like that sure takes a lot out of the soil. (laughs) Another year, he had corn that ran 165 bushels to the acre. Before it was harvested, Sam was in my office, and I said, conversationally as well as to see whether Sam was running true to form, How's the corn this year, Sam? And Sam said, Terrible. It's so heavy, I don't know how we're going to get it in. (laughs) Another time in October, I met him on the street. It was one of those beautiful dreams of an October day that we so often have in Wisconsin. With what I thought was contagious enthusiasm, I said, Hello, Sam. Wonderful day, isn't it? Sam's answer was, Yeah, but when we get it, we'll get it hard. These outlooks are typical of Sam. Now, on the other hand, there's William, king of the living. Sam had everything going for him, and he couldn't find anything good to say, except his wife thought he may have said something the first year they were married that was good. But William, king of the living, had a lot of tragedy in his life, and things went wrong for him. So Dr. Schindler writes the story, William, king of the living. The other man to contrast with Sam is a man still to be seen on the streets of our town. His hat is respectable but old. His coat is clean but worn. His smile is sincere. The look in his eyes is glad. He is called William. William, too, inherited a good round sum from his father, just as Sam did. And in an adventurous sort of a way, he tripled it and quadrupled it and enjoyed it as only William knew how to enjoy. Then came 1929 and 1930. The bankers, and one was particularly bad, set upon William gleefully and cleaned him out. I am told on one good authority that with a little lenience, William could have come through the Depression in good condition. But this one banker snapped up what William had while the snapping was good. William went on WPA. 
I stopped one day when I saw him digging in a ditch with a string of other men. William was 60, and he hadn't worked at manual labor for years, if ever. When he saw me, he smiled, a great big smile, and rested on his shovel. You might almost say, he laughed, that you are watching an honest man earn an honest dollar. But it isn't quite true. I earn only 79 cents of it. The rest of the time I lean on my shovel and talk. But that's what the government wants. It's not so much to get this ditch dug as it is to help the public's morale. And so the 21 cents I don't earn shoveling, I make up for by boosting the general morale of these fellow workers here with me. <laughs> All the fellows down in the ditch laughed with him. They had been feeling good ever since he joined them. He always made everybody feel good. William still had a few irons in the fire, and he made a little money over and above his WPA intake. But then both he and his wife, whom he adored, developed an abdominal malignancy at the same time. Each had an operation. He lived and was cured, but he lost his wife. And it took all his recent savings to pay the hospital. Through the whole thing, William never changed. He never talked about himself nor complained. He had a pleasant story, an interesting anecdote, cheerful greetings, whenever anyone came to see him in his hospital room. His wife's death must have made a great hole in his life, but he never let on. He filled it with the old smile which shone now beneath the battered hat that was all he could afford. Here and there he made a little to live on, one way or another, but was always happy. Then he developed a malignancy of the larynx, more operations. I'd seen him in the office, and he had so many interesting things to tell me. I had difficulty finding out how he was. And miraculously, he was cured of the malignancy in his larynx. He still goes around the town smiling, interested in everything, and interesting everyone in something. Probably the most remarkable thing about William is this. The banker who cleaned William out in the Depression has never had a friend. I have never heard anyone say a good or kind word about him except William. William thinks the banker is a man of great capacity and told me once, people think the man has no heart. But he is kind, really. Nobody seems to pay any attention when he is kind, but they sure talk about him when he does the kind of thing a banker necessarily has to do. One of William's neighbors, having admired the manner in which Will kept his head up, the cheerful smile on his lips, and the friendly unwinding greeting through all his misfortune, stopped Will one morning and said, William, if you'll excuse me, I want to say something simply that I admire the way you come through misfortune after misfortune. I'm sure I'd like to know your recipe. Would you mind giving it to me? William smiled warmly. Like everyone else, he liked a pat on the back. Well, I'll tell you. A long time ago, I sat down to try to figure out my next move. It didn't look as though there was another move. I thought a long time, and then the answer came to me. I got up and repeated it to myself. William, you might as well just cooperate with the inevitable. And that's what I've been doing ever since, cooperating with the inevitable. Now, I would not agree with that, in, in a sense, but to agree with, of course, with uh, William's positive attitude, in spite of his trials and tests and setbacks, he tried to encourage other people, even when he was discouraged, even when he was down. So let's turn to Matthew, the uh, seventh chapter, Matthew 7, 7. I just want to give a little twist on William's story 
because we can change when we are in certain circumstances. You know the story or the prayer of serenity. You know, God, give me the courage to change the things that I can and acceptance to uh, accept the things, the patience to accept the things I cannot change and the wisdom to know the difference. And yet God wants us to take action. He wants us to cry out to him in times of trial. So Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 7, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. We heard in the sermonette about asking questions or answering questions. For everyone that asks receives, and he that seeks finds. And him that knocks, it shall be opened unto him. He says that God is going to give us good things. Verse 11, If we being evil know how to give good gifts unto our children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? And of course in Luke's account it says, Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. So these two stories, one of negativity, one of a positive attitude, and accepting, yes, there are some times when we have to accept our circumstances, that is to do the best we can under those circumstances. But at the same time, we can pray and ask God for a change in our circumstances. We don't want to be like the patriarch Job, who in Job 3 and verse 25 said, For the thing I greatly feared has come upon me, and what I dreaded has happened to me. We call that a self-fulfilling prophecy in our modern day. And if any of you have a fear or a dread, you don't just accept that fear and dread. You face that fear. You face that dread. And you ask God for protection. You ask God for deliverance. Do that uh, often. Let's turn to Philippians uh, 4, chapter Philippians 4. The Apostle Paul probably experienced similar activities or condition as to both Sam king of his own stew, and William, king of the living. But he had a secret. He doesn't tell us exactly what it is, but he says he has learned something very profoundly in his life. Philippians 4 and verse 10. Now remember, and we'll come back to the book of Philippians later on, that the apostle Paul was in prison. He had chains around his ankles when he wrote this book, this epistle. You read that in chapter 1. And yet... The Apostle Paul was positive in spite of his negative environment and condition. Philippians 4, verse 10, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. He's rejoicing even though he's got chains around his ankles. That now at the last you care, your care for me or of me has flourished again, wherein you also uh, were careful but lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, For I have learned, verse 11, in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. Now, people are discouraged, people are frustrated, people are worried. And yet the Apostle Paul said he'd learned this secret, that whatever state or condition he was in, he could find contentment. Well, that doesn't mean when you're in an emergency, you don't call upon all the resources you can and take action. But he says, I know, verse 12, how to be abased, and I know how to abound. He knew what it's like to be without food. He knew what it was like to be a day and a night in the deep, in the ocean. Everywhere in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
So, brethren, I hope that we are learning that lesson as we face discouragement that the Apostle Paul said that I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances, as it says in the New King James Version. Well, just what is the state of mental health in the United States? Recent studies have shown that greater than 20% of adolescents, and we have adolescents in here, in the general population have emotional problems, and one-third of adolescents attending psychiatry clinics suffer from depression. That's from the Canadian Journal of CME. And then from the National Institute of Health and uh, or Mental Health, an estimated 22.1% of Americans 18 and older, about one in five, over 44 million adults, suffer from a diagnosable mental disorder in a given year. 22%. Women are nearly twice as likely to suffer from major depression than men. However, men and women are equally likely to develop bipolar disorder. While major depression can develop at any age, the average age at onset is in the mid-20s. So how can we overcome mental and emotional ill health? We all have human nature, and I'm sure it's afflicted most of us, if not all of us, one time or another. Well, the answer to the question how we can overcome it, one of the answers is to be converted. So it says in Acts 2, verse 38, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let's turn there to Second Timothy 1. You're very familiar with that, I know. But when we're talking about discouragement, and we're talking about depression, we need the, the antidote. We need the solution to the problem. He's, God says very clearly here in verse 7 of 2 Timothy 1, For God has not given us the spirit of fear, or as one translation has it, timidity. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So sometimes you think you're going crazy or you have senior moments like uh, some of us seniors have from time to time. We need to pray for sound-mindedness, and God gives that to us through His Holy Spirit. And we need to renew God's spirits. Turn to Ephesians, the fourth chapter. Ephesians, the fourth chapter. Ephesians 4, by the way, and Colossians 2 are chapters that have to do with the old man and the new man. And we'll talk about that perhaps later. But Ephesians, the fourth chapter, and verse, let's start here in Ephesians 4, and... Okay, wait a minute. I must have the wrong verse here. Let me just check. Okay. Uh, starting with verse 20. I had the wrong verse to start with here. But you have not so learned Christ, that is, to walk in ungodliness. Verse 21 of Ephesians 4. If so be that you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning the former conduct the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. There's the, always the old man. And the old man is vanity, jealousy, lust, greed, selfishness. And that is human nature, as Jeremiah described it in Jeremiah 7, uh, 9, was it? Jeremiah 17, 9, I believe. 
But notice verse 23, "...and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness." So we need to remember, those of us who have been baptized, that the old man, symbolic of the human nature, has been buried. And the new man, begotten of God by His Holy Spirit, with Christ living in us, is the new man. And we have to remember that the old man keeps trying to revive himself. And we have to keep that old man dead. We'll uh, read another scripture on that later. So we have to overcome our human nature. And I won't turn there, but John 16:33, Jesus said, In me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. That scripture is one of the encouragements to me when you realize if Christ has overcome the world, Christ in you can also overcome the world. In fact, on our church bulletin today, We have announced the uh, telecast, which is Overcoming Satan by Dr. Meredith. Yes, we can overcome the world. We can overcome Satan. And we must be committed to do so. Christ said, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. What is discouragement? One of the definitions is a reversal of action an undoing of a spirit or attitude which enables one to meet dangers and difficulties with firmness and valor. Discouragement means to lessen the courage of or to weaken in intention. And some of us may have weakened in our intention. Of course, the opposite of discourage is courage. And I hope all of you, uh, if you haven't heard Dr. Winnale's sermon, The Importance of Courage, he gave just a few weeks ago, Number 461, uh, be sure to listen to that in your sermon library. The rest of the sermon time, I want to share with you seven ways to overcome discouragement. Number one is to be determined, be committed to reach the goal. Now, we saw that one of the definitions of discouragement was was to weaken in intention. And that's happened to some of our brethren. They've weakened in their commitment. And they've left us and they've fallen away because they didn't have that determination, that bulldog commitment to reach the goal. And, of course, we know what the goal is, Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Let's turn to Luke 13, Luke 13. So Jesus said to seek first the kingdom. And here in Luke, the 13th chapter, He gives us another action verb, Luke 13 and verse 24. Well, starting with verse 23, Then said one unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? And he said unto them, Strive to enter in at the straight gate or the narrow gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. No, you can't have salvation by works. Salvation is a gift. But God requires certain things of us so that we can learn His godly character. And character is something God cannot produce by fiat, that is, by instantaneous command. It is something that happens over a lifetime. And that's why we're living as long as we are, because we have so much more character yet for God to create in us as we cooperate with Him. The margin here says, Strive as in agony. 
So we have to have that bulldog determination. Number one is be determined, be committed to reach the goal. Again, some of us may be very worried and, and anxious. This mon- last Monday night, my wife and I watched uh, President Bush give his annual State of the Union address. The Charlotte Observer had this headline the next day, Analysis. Speech comes amid high public anxiety. Then the uh, dateline, Washington, the State of the Union is anxious. The whole idea that the mental state and emotional state of Americans is that of anxiety. Tim Rom, the Associated Press writer, writes, In the eighth and final year of George Bush's presidency, Americans have stomach-clenching worries about a recession, soaring fuel costs, huge budget deficits, the war in Iraq, fighting in Afghanistan, a showdown with Iran, global terrorism. The list goes on and on. Now, do we give up because the world is going down? Do we give up because... There are serious, severe problems that are affecting nations and will be affecting even our region eventually. We've already experienced many of those problems. But how do we counter that? We have to be determined to stick to the goal, to strive to enter in as in agony. Let's let's look at another action verb here in Philippians 3. Philippians, the third chapter. And Jesus said, strive to enter in the narrow gate. And he said, seek first the kingdom of God. Philippians, the third chapter, starting here in verse 6. Philippians 3. Let's start here in, uh, all right, verse 6, because uh, we had a comment about zeal. The Apostle Paul is telling about his background as a Pharisee. Verse 6, Philippians 3, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. His zeal was channeled in the wrong direction. It was destructive. But when he was converted, that zeal was directed in the right way for good purposes. And, of course, uh, as it was mentioned in the announcements, you want to read Mr. Partian's comment from CAD about zeal and diligence in today's church bulletin and in the weekly update. He goes on here then, verse 7, But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them as rubbish, that I may win Christ and be found in him not having my own righteousness, that is, by his own strength, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Again, the Apostle Paul had that vision. He had that goal and that purpose. Not as though I had already attained, verse 12, either are already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Verse 13, 
Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So we must strive to enter in as an agony. We press for the prize toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So there are seven ways to overcome discouragement, more than those, but the first one we're discussing is be determined, be committed, press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling, strive to enter in. We've mentioned this recently, but April 18th, Friday night, is the Passover, and uh, we want to make sure that the Passover we are, again, renewing our commitments that we made at baptism and renewing our commitments to the kingdom. And we must strengthen our intention, not weaken it. We must strengthen our commitment to Christ and to God and to the kingdom. So number one of seven ways to overcome discouragement is be determined, be committed. Number two is to study biblical examples of those who are under pressure and those who had problems. Turn to uh, Psalm 3 and verse 3. We'll take a look at King David's example. Psalm 3, King David's example. I know uh, sometimes I tend to uh, talk long. I noticed uh, here, just as an aside, that there's a a clock up here. And uh, I know that one time I was speaking as a guest speaker in a local church, and as I was coming near the end of my sermon, the alarm went off. And uh, I thought, well, I guess guest speakers tend to speak long. So (laughs) I don't think the deacons would dare do that here. I hope not. Anyway. Anyway, David, of course, faced trials. He was pursued by King Saul. King Saul wanted to kill him. And David says here in, in Psalm 3, Eternal, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. Selah. But you, O Eternal, are a shield for me. My glory And in the King James has the lifter up of my head. So, or the one who lifts up my head in the New King James. I just like that expression. He's the lifter up of my head. You know, people who are discouraged walk around with their head down. And he says, you are the lifter up of my head. Of course, in Isaiah 40, he says, lift up your eyes on high. And behold, who has created all these things. So God wants us to walk tall, smile tall, stand tall. And, of course, look to him for deliverance. Let's turn to Psalm 31. Psalm 31. Of course, there are many of David's prayers when he was in a state, perhaps, of discouragement or when he was being pursued by his enemies. Psalm 31, verse 23. O love the eternal, all you his saints, for the eternal preserves the faithful and plentifully rewards the proud doer. Be of good courage. And he shall strengthen your heart, all you that hope in the eternal. David was one who just was very intimate with God. He shared all his worries, all of his problems. He said, uh, you know, in Psalm 13, 
Verse 1, Oh, how long will you forget me, O eternal? Forever? You know, it's amazing how David would just uh, share his frustrations and his concerns. But he was open with God for those he knew who God was. He wasn't disrespectful, but he was emotional, and he let God know what his feelings were. Let's turn to Psalm 59 and verse 1. Psalm 59 and verse 1. It's interesting that uh, David pleads with God 26 times, Deliver me, just as he says here in Psalm 59 and verse 1. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Defend me from them that rise up against me. So David asked God for deliverance. Sometimes we need relief. And Jesus said, Come unto me, all those of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I might refer you to uh, Mr. John O'Gwin's Tomorrow's World telecast titled, How Do You Spell Relief? And if you need encouragement, I would encourage me to see that telecast. They're, of course, on our website. How Do You Spell Relief? A telecast by Mr. O'Gwin. So we've seen David's example when he was discouraged. What he did, he cried out to God for deliverance. The Apostle Paul, you know his problems as well, how he was a day and night in the deep, and he lists all of his trials there, or many of them, in 2 Corinthians 11th chapter. But let's turn to Acts, the 16th chapter, Acts 16, and see how he handled a discouraging situation. Acts 16 And uh, here, of course, is the story of how uh, Paul and Silas were put in prison and they uh, commanded to beat them. Verse 23 of Acts 16. And uh, when they laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. Now, how would you respond to that? Would you say, this is the end of the world. I'm, You know, God has left me, forsaken me. We've been beaten with stripes, and now our feet are in stocks. How should I react? Should I be like Sam, or should I be like Liam? What did they do? And at midnight, verse 25, And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. And the prisoners heard them. Would you do that? When you're down and weary and you're about ready to give up, do you pray to God and sing psalms? That's what they did. Now, you may not have a great earthquake immediately following, but that's what happened here. Verse 26, And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. And, of course, you know the rest of the story, how the uh, Philippian jailer, accepted uh, the message, and uh, his family uh, were uh, converted. But the Apostle Paul, again, had a positive attitude in a negative condition and situation. Go back to Philippians 4, and I'm sure that's well marked because we've preached this so many times. Philippians 4, and again, this uh, was written, as I mentioned earlier, when the Apostle Paul was in prison and had chains around his ankles. Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always. 
And again, I say rejoice. So he not only tells you to rejoice, but he says, I'm telling you again, rejoice. Get the point. What, what is it you don't understand about rejoice? You know, he's uh, very straightforward. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. And be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. So whatever your problem is, just pray about everything. Anything that worries you, anything that disturbs you, you pray about it. And God will help you over your fears, your frustrations, and your worries. But you have to face those fears, not as Job who said, no, that which I have feared has come upon me. But you face your fears and you pray about them and ask for God's deliverance and his direction and guidance. And you ask with thanksgiving. So thank you, Father, for hearing my prayer. Thank you for being concerned for my worries and my frustrations and my anxieties. And with that thanksgiving, you're again implicitly saying, I believe you, I trust you. I have faith that you're going to help me. And the peace of God, which passes all understandings, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And that's something that no mental health institute can give you. It's something God can give you. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. But we still have to discipline our minds. God has given us the greatest gift that we have, apart from his Holy Spirit and the sacrifice of Christ, but the physical gift is our minds. And we have to discipline our minds that we think correctly, properly. We discipline ourselves. We don't let our minds wandering into strange, bizarre, weird, and occultish ideas and thoughts. So what do we think about? Verse 8, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, noble, just, pure, lovely, of a good report, if there be virtue, if there be praise, or anything praiseworthy, think on these things. And those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. And Paul again says, I rejoiced in the Lord. He uses the word rejoice in the book of Philippians, I believe it is, uh, eight times. So we need to have a positive attitude, and we can learn from the men and women of the Bible as they are men and women of faith. There are other books that can give us encouragement. I remember one story when I was a little boy, and apparently that one book at one time was one of the largest circulating books in the world. It was called The Little Engine That Could. How many of you have read The Little Engine That Could? I guess most of you have, surprising. If you haven't, you need to read it. But it's about this little railroad engine that was so weak and compared to all the big railroad engines, and the little engine had a, a job to take a train load over a mountain. And it was a very tough hill for that little engine to go over that mountain. The little children are listening. But the little, the engine, the little engine that could kept saying, what did he say? What did the, do you know what the little children say? I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. So the engine attached to all of the other railroad cars and he started going up the hill, but it was very tough to go up that hill. But he said, I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. 
So a positive attitude can help, and you'll have to read the book to find out whether he made it or not. <laughs> but I remember one time in Pasadena at Ambassador College, of course, basketball was one of the big sports for intramural activities, and the faculty was winning all the games, and the freshman team was losing all of their games. But Mr. Armstrong wanted to encourage them. And I guess in the freshman class that he taught, he told the freshmen, you know, you really can win one of these basketball games. All you have to remember, he can who thinks he can. And so the next time, next Saturday night, the freshmen played, the cheerleaders were out there and they had a new cheer. He can who thinks he can. He can who thinks he can. And the freshmen won that game. It was the only game they won the whole season. <laughs> Well, we need a positive attitude. We realize that the Apostle Peter and Paul and others uh, experienced terrible trials and tests, and yet they still had a positive attitude. So number one, the number two, uh, that is, study biblical examples. King David, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, we think of those in Hebrews 11, and read the book of Philippians. If you're discouraged, read through the book of Philippians. The Apostle Paul said, Rejoice, and again I say rejoice. And there's another sermon I could recommend to you too, Dr. Meredith's sermon, Hope and Positive Thinking. That's number 134 in our sermon library. Number two was study biblical examples. Number three is encourage others. Years ago, uh, when I had my little uh, week at a glance book, uh, I wrote down lessons. And I realized when depressed, because I would get discouraged or down, how did I cope with that? I wrote in my little lesson book, when depressed, go out and jog or run. And you realize that when you are out jogging and running, that the, physio the physiology of the body will produce endorphins, which gives you a, a better feeling in your, your brain and your thinking. I believe it's endorphins. All you scientists, uh, good, thank you for agreeing with me. But anyway, I found that that was a strategy to overcome depression or discouragement. And another strategy I wrote down was try to do good for someone else. When you're focused on yourself, when you're so discouraged about yourself, try to do something good for something, someone else. Write a letter, pick up a, send an email, uh, pick up the telephone and call someone, or write a little letter of encouragement. Let's turn to James 5, James 5. So key number three to overcoming discouragement is to encourage others. James, the fifth chapter, James 5 and verse 16. I know most of you do it. We have our prayer requests in the church bulletin weekly, and others of you get uh, other prayer requests through email, and we have some that come in th to the office here uh, regularly. And James 5 and verse 16 Confess your faults one to another, and pray one for another, that you may be healed. And we had a healing here recently with a prayer request Mr. Amen was telling me about uh, up in uh, Statesville, uh, that uh, one individual that was in the hospital was released. The doctors were just amazed. Uh, this was just the other day. So, again, the effective fervent prayer, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. 
We encourage others by praying for others. And, of course, uh, in turn to Acts 4, verse 36, one thing that I find, and I'm human too, and I get discouraged, and every once in a while, and I think it's been more frequent recently, I ask God for encouragement. So, Father, please give me encouragement, but I can't let it stop at me. I have to say, and please help me to encourage others. If God encourages me, then I've got to be able to encourage others as well. So pray for the ability to encourage others, and God will give you encouragement as well. Acts 4 and uh, verse 36, we find that Barnabas served faithfully in God's work. In fact, his name appears, and I was surprised to find this, appears 29 times in the New Testament. Uh, Barnabas was an apostle, which you may not know, but it says the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, that's in Acts 14.14. So Barnabas was an apostle, but not at this point, for chapter 4, verse 36. But notice this interesting comment about Barnabas. He had given, he had sold his property and given uh, the, res- the results uh, to the church. And verse 36, and Joseph, or we would say Joseph today, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, notice this, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, or in the New King James, the son of encouragement. Barnabas apparently was an encourager. There was no reason to put the meaning of his name in here, or else we'd have meanings of other people's names quite frequently. But apparently Barnabas was one who encouraged others, and his name meant son of encouragement or son of consolation. And so God used him mightily. Number, so encouraging others is what I'm saying here. Number three, pray that you can encourage others. And also, of course, I repeat this to you often, but have your heart in good God's work. That's how you can encourage others. When people see your enthusiasm for the mission that God has given us, that encourages others. Turn to Luke, uh, the fourth chapter, Luke 4. And you see that a fulfilled prophecy is still continuing to this day as a part of our mission. Jesus was in Nazareth, and he spoke, stood up on the Sabbath day to read. They gave him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he was reading from Isaiah 61 and verse 1. Verse 18, The Spirit of the Eternal is upon me, because he has anointed me to... Do what? Preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. That's an emotional brokenness. That's an emotional illness. God can heal your emotional illness. To proclaim liberty to the captives. As John 8.32, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free and recovery of sight to the blind, both physically and spiritually, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable day of the Lord, the acceptable year of the Lord. That is part of our mission that we are carrying on today. You can read in Isaiah 58, I won't take time to read there, about the spiritual fast that God wants us to have. He says, well, why do you just... um, put on this uh, 
uh, selfish kind of fast that politicians and others in the past have used. And I'll just read it to you here briefly. One Isaiah 58 and verse 6. Is not this the fast that I have chosen to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out? That's both physically and spiritually. And God's work is doing that, fulfilling that spiritually. We are helping people who are hungry and giving them spiritual food. We're giving them the right truth, the gospel, the good news of God's coming kingdom. And the world is not going to end the way we think it's going to end. That good news goes out. I'll just read uh, one comment that came in from Maryville, Tennessee. Not only in, of course, preaching the gospel to the world, but in our local congregations. And this was directed a letter to Dr. Meredith from Maryville, Tennessee. Quote, we are thankful to say that we began attending Sabbath services uh, with those in the Living Church of God here in Knoxville last Sabbath. And after hearing your sermon, which they heard probably the video sermon, on healing, this has been of great encouragement to me personally, especially after I was anointed asking Christ to heal me of the gallbladder. You brought many tears when you covered how Mr. Richard Armstrong, so full of the Holy Spirit, actually had prayed over individuals and saw three of those people healed. May God continue to bless and keep you in the faith right up to his return. So God gives us encouragement, and we're giving people encouragement. You're giving people encouragement. You're clothing the naked. You're feeding the hungry spiritually through the gospel going out to the world. And, of course, you need to do that in your own example. Uh, in setting a right example of overcoming and, and serving in your own life. Many in the Charlotte congregation are profitable servants. We saw that for the 15th anniversary weekend here sometime back, which we really appreciated all that extra service. And uh, you encourage us by your example. A few weeks ago, I was up at Statesville, and, uh, of course, they have a hall rental there, or a rented hall, and uh, they had to take the chairs out and then set up the tables in the hall as they were originally. And then we had the tables. Well, I sorry, I guess we set the tables up for the uh, covered dish meal. But then this eight-year-old girl was helping the men. She took all of the tablecloths off and rolled them up. No one asked her to do this. And I was just amazed. Her example encouraged me. Your example can encourage others. This eight-year-old girl was serving and helping, and she just greatly encouraged me. I told her father about that, and he was very encouraged too. So, and of course, God tells us that we have to, in Matthew 25, when Jesus said, well, and the, the people came to him, well, where, where were you? When did we feed you? When did we visit you in prison? When did we clothe you? And Jesus said, Inasmuch as you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. So number three in overcoming, and I'm not through with number three yet, but just to review it, number three is set a good example. Do the best you can and encourage others. I'm sorry, it's encourage others. Uh, setting example is a sub-point of encouraging others. You can encourage others with your words as well. 
Let's turn to Malachi 3 and verse uh, 16. Malachi 3. I think you know that one. Malachi 3, verse 16. Then they that feared the Eternal spoke often one to another, and the Eternal hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Eternal and thought upon his name. So they spoke often one to another. Encourage one another with your words. And, of course, I've mentioned the law of reinforcement before, which uh, has to do that any living organism will tend to repeat behaviors for which it is not rewarded, and uh, sorry, for which it is rewarded, and tend not to uh, repeat behaviors for which it is not rewarded. And that comes down to... uh, reinforcement, the law of reinforcement, and people who have disabilities where counselors help them to realize, okay, this is how you uh, put a T-shirt over your head. You take step one, step two, and reward them. But we do it physically to our little children. We encourage them. And yet we need to encourage others, the older ones, with our words and realize, as my mother told me one time, and I didn't realize it until I was around age Oh, I gotta figure that one out. Uh, Thirty, I guess, thirty, forty-one, I guess it was. And uh, I was giving a Tomorrow's World lecture in Jacksonville, Florida, and she happened to be visiting in the area. My dad and she, and uh, I was telling her that I was going to be. I had concern about giving these lectures. She says, "Oh, Richard, you'll do well." And the light went on. You'll do well. She'd been saying to that that to me all my life. And I finally figured at age 41, well, she's been giving me positive encouragement, positive reinforcement all the time. (laughs) Be aware of potential dangers, okay? (laughs) So we need to encourage our children and give them positive reinforcement. And children, you know, if your parents do anything right, you know, you need to encourage them and say, well, even if they do it by accident, encourage them and... Tell them, well, Daddy, you did a really good job in, in, uh, in uh, whatever, giving me that, uh, that uh, computer. And uh, <laughs> Mommy, you did a really good job in making my bed. So you children, reinforce your parents like that, and they'll tend to repeat those behaviors. <laughs> so <clears throat> encourage your neighbors also. And uh, I, I just remember when uh, years ago, I guess I was in about 7th or 8th grade, we lived in New London, Connecticut, and we had uh, a neighbor uh, next to us had a large Italian family, had a large garden. And every once in a while, there would be a box of vegetables on our back porch. And they didn't say anything, but we knew it came from right next door. So encourage your neighbors. Remember, the second great commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. And while we're at it, I would encourage you, we were talking about it this morning <clears throat> at brunch, about uh, there are going to be food shortages, you know, in the future. And it would be a good idea for some of us to grow vegetable gardens. And uh, it, uh, and they're more healthful, and, uh, of course, they'll be more first fruits as well. But uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm sorry for that aside. Uh, <clears throat> No, but it's it really, you'll save money and, uh, you know, you'll be helping your neighbors. And, uh, you know, if you have some good fruit, give them to your neighbors. Uh, give them encouragement as well. Number three, we're going to have to move along here, was encourage others. You encourage others by praying f- that you can, 
that God will give you the gift of encouraging others, that you have your heart in your work, you're setting a serving example, you're encouraging others with your words, and you're encouraging your neighbors. So number three was encourage others. Number four is to realize the old man is dead. We already commented on that in Colossians, the third chapter, or Ephesians, the fourth chapter. But let's turn to Colossians 3, Colossians, the third chapter. He says, you are dead. Now, what does he mean that you are dead? That's in Colossians 3. Colossians 3 and verse 3. For you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. So again, he's talking about the old man and the new man. And uh, he says, verse 10, you have put on the new man which is renewed knowledge after the image of him that created him. So remember that the old man keeps trying to resurrect himself. So what does he tell us? Verse 5, Put to death, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So we have to keep the old man dead and encourage the new man. And, of course, he tells us similarly, as Dr. Meredith often quotes, Galatians 2.20, that we are dead. I am crucified with Christ. Well, if you're crucified with Christ, the old man is dead. But he said, nevertheless, I live, the Apostle Paul says, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. So we all have a new life. And he tells us that you are a new creation in Christ. And you are complete in Christ. So we are new persons, have to be new persons, growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. But that realization that the old man is dead and needs to be totally defeated, like Mr. Herbert Armstrong wrote in his autobiography, the section on joy in defeat, and how he realized he had to give up all his business friends of Chicago and and the uh, the acceptance of society, and realized surrendered himself totally to God and to Christ, and that surrender brought him great joy in his life. Let's turn to Romans, the 12th chapter, Romans 12. Realize that the old man is dead. It has to do with commitment. It has to do with surrender. It has to do with the Renewal of our acceptance of Christ's sacrifice at the Passover. We accepted that, but we want to recommit our lives to Him. Romans, the 12th chapter. Romans, because sometimes we forget. Sometimes we are distracted. Romans, the 12th chapter. Here the Apostle Paul is pleading to the Jews and Gentiles in Rome, the Christians there. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Now, one of the non-enjoyable activities that uh, I sometimes participate in is taking my wife to a department store. It sometimes happens that she's in the car with me, so she can't go separately. I'm stuck. And so we, it's a Saturday evening, he says, oh, Dick, can we just go over here and uh, look in this store for a while? And I, oh, okay. And I remember, I remember Romans 12, verse 1. Be a living sacrifice. 
So you realize, look, there are times when you won't want to do what you're doing, but you're going to serve, you're going to help, you're going to be a living sacrifice. Of course, that applies more than uh, non-enjoyable activities, but nonetheless, um, we can live and serve and help and go above and beyond, which many of you do. You serve people even though... Uh, you don't feel like it. You don't want to. And, of course, the ultimate is to want to help others as you grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And notice verse 2, And be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. When we approach the Passover, we realize that Christ is Lord. The Greek for the word Lord is kurios, which means owner or master. I think master we all realize, but owner had a certain um, message for me. You know, realize that Christ owns me. He's bought and paid for me by his blood. And that's 1 Corinthians 20. Know you not that you are bought with a price, says there in 1 Corinthians 20. Let's turn to uh, Romans 14, just over the page here, Romans 14 and verse 7. And again, we need to think about this as we Look forward to the Passover. Romans 14, 7. For none of us lives to himself, and no man dies to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. We belong to him. And it's not up to you to say, I want to die now. Because it's up to God who wants you to continue to live as a living sacrifice and to serve and to fulfill the mission and the work He has ahead for you. There are others who get despondent, so depressed that they want to give up. That's not your decision. God will take you when He knows it's best for you, when you've come to the point of total surrender, when you've come to the place of spiritual maturity. And he knows that you have that spiritual attitude and mind and heart that could be considered godly, righteous, holy character. So whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, verse 9, Christ both died and rose and revived that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. So number four is realize that the old man is dead and walk in newness of life. Number five is apply the sixth law of success. Let's turn to Luke, the 18th chapter, Luke 18. And, of course, I won't embarrass you by uh, asking you to tell me what the sixth law of success is. But I think, how many of you know what the sixth law of success is? Good. One, two, three, four, five. Oh, <laughs> brethren, how long have you been with us? Seven laws of success are fundamental to a way of life. I've taught them on the telecast. I've taught them for, uh, se- you know, the uh, what is it? SEP, a summer educational program. Uh, the uh, LYC, Living Youth Camp. You need to know them. Number one, of course, is seek first the kingdom of God. Is fix the right goal. I won't go over them now. I guess you need a couple sermons on that one, boy. I'm, Five people only know what the six laws? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, that, that's, I've already been disappointed. Now you've disappointed me again. 
All right, Luke 18, but I'm trying to encourage you. That's what I'm trying to do. (laughs) That's right. It tells us in Hebrews 10, you know, verse 24, exhort one another while it is day. And uh, some of the translations say encourage one another uh, because uh, time is uh, fleeing. This is the parable of the importunate widow, meaning the widow importunes. She pleads with a judge. And Jesus spoke this parable unto them that they ought always to pray and not faint. They are to persevere. The sixth law of success is perseverance, stick-to-itiveness, illustrated here by Luke 18. In one application, that is through prayer. And she kept bugging the judge, and the judge here is not a righteous person, but he says in verse uh, 5, Because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge says. So God is not comparing himself to being an unjust judge. He's saying that if an unjust judge will respond to persevering prayer and supplications, how much more will a heavenly father respond to someone who is crying out, as he says in the next verse, day and night unto them, though he bear long with them. I tell you speedily he will avenge them. I tell you he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, will the Son of Man come? Shall he find faith on the earth? Number five, I'm going to be moving along here a little more quickly, is apply the sixth law of success. To overcome discouragement, apply the sixth law of success. Persevere. Stick with it. Don't give up. Number six is to ask God for more faith and love. And I think you do that from time to time. But in terms of discouragement, despondency, depression, we need to ask God for a positive mind. We need that perfect love that casts out fear, which is 1 John 4, verse 18. And you know 1 John 8. In verse, first John 4, verse 8, and 1 John 4, verse 16, says God is love. Romans 5, verse 5, and hope makes not ashamed. Hope is a positive expectation. We've heard sermons on that and, uh, and even uh, sermonettes on the subject. And hope makes not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit which is given unto us. So God's Spirit is given unto us, gives us that love. You don't have that kind of love naturally. It's a gift from God, and you have to ask for it. Romans 10:17, of course, tells us, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. We need a deep faith, a total trust in God. So ask God for more trust, more faith, and more love. This is number six. Number seven is to claim God's promises. 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, 1 Corinthians 10. And some uh, people just give up when they face uh, certain trials and tests. But here we read, There is no temptation taken you, verse 13, 1 Corinthians 10, but such as is common to man. Uh, how many times have people said, Oh, you don't understand what I'm going through. I'm, I've got the worst problem ever. Well, what about the 40 million Chinese who are left out in the snow today because of, of uh, travel problems and transportation problems in China? What about those in Darfur and Bangladesh and other places? Would you want to change places with them? I don't think you would. 
You say, so you, you have, any trial you have is common to man. You don't have something that's more extreme than anyone else on the face of the earth. You may feel extreme pain, which I have felt, and Jesus himself felt, so he knows what it's like. But such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not permit you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Claim that promise when you're going through a trial and you're in agony. Turn to this scripture and show it to God and ask God to fulfill that, that you'll have the strength and the power from him to bear it. And there may be other strategies and uh, ways of escape that he'll reveal to you. One student years ago wrote this, what God's word means to me. I'll just read an excerpt from her, her essay because she says this, God's word provides guidance, comfort, and reassurance. He says in Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, that if we trust and rely on him, he will make straight our paths. Psalm 119, 105 says that his word is a lamp to my feet. I read these, she writes, and other encouraging scriptures when I feel out of step with God. His word is like a beacon of light when I'm in darkness. God's promises are faultless. I know that I can claim them. They give me hope to carry on, especially in discouraging times. So when you're discouraged, claim God's promises. So what do you do when you're discouraged? Do something. Get your mind off yourself. Go out and jog or put some kind of positive effort. Write a note, an email, or a telephone. Because people are very discouraged and people are anxious. As it said, that the state of the union is anxiousness or anxiety. The Charlotte Observer newspaper asked, Are you miserable? And Forbes magazine rated Charlotte the ninth worst in misery of 150 metro areas. But are we as residents of this region the ninth most miserable in the United States? Absolutely not. Why? Why not? Because God has given us the truth that makes us free, as Jesus said in John 8.32. And because God has given us His Spirit, the Spirit of love and of power and of a sound mind, and God has called us to fulfill a mission, He's called us to encourage others, He's called us to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. And God's work is striving to fulfill that mission. More than 44 million U.S. adults suffer suffer from a diagnosable mental disorder in a given year. And any one of us can feel depressed or discouraged from time to time. But God has given us the power to overcome discouragement. He's given us that spirit of a sound mind. Sam, king of his own stew, made himself miserable with a negative mindset. William, king of the living, found something positive in life to cope with setbacks and trials and discouragement. But what are you? Are you a Sam or are you a William? Are you a Barnabas, an encourager? In summary, let's understand that to overcome the seven ways of overcoming discouragement, one was to be determined, to be committed to reach the goal, and to know your mission, a sermon I gave a couple weeks ago, and to study biblical examples to encourage others, 
to realize that the old man is dead and we are to walk in newness of life and it's time to start thinking about renewing our Passover commitments. And number five was to apply the seventh, sixth law of success. Number six was to ask God for more faith and love. And number seven was to claim God's promises. Here in Luke, the 10th chapter, and verse 31, the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, verse 32, but I have prayed for... No, I'm sorry, that's not Luke 10. I'm sorry, get wrong chapter. Make sure, give you the right reference. Luke 22, sorry. Luke 22, verse 32, But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, or as in the King James, when you are converted, strengthen the brethren. That's what we're doing. We're committed to do. We live in a world of anxiety and worry. So let's encourage one another. Let's be overcomers. Let's grow in faith and courage. And let us rejoice in the power and the love and the sound-mindedness of God. Let's fulfill our mission to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, which is all a part of the kingdom of God. And let's turn many to righteousness.